everyone, and welcome to another edition of Criminal Discourse Podcast. I'm Trish. And I'm Maddie. And we're back with you with the final part of the Sophie Toscan du Plantier murder. Three of three. Three of three. So you didn't think I could do it in three? I didn't. I was sure we were going for four. <laughs> Especially when I saw you on Saturday and you were like, there's new information. I was like, oh, that's another part. No, no. <laughs> we're going to get it all in today. I, I promise. So we are recording this actually the week of Christmas. Yes. But it will not air until after the new year. So happy holidays to all of our listeners. We hope you had a good one. And of course... Happy New Year. Yeah, let's bring in 2022. Can't be any worse than 2021. (laughs) Isn't that what we said about 2021? Yes, we did. You can always hope for something better for the new year. Okay, so we are going to jump right into this case. I did put out on social media the murder board so people can see kind of the whole. I mean, I don't think they get the whole how big it is, but it's big. It's taller than you, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's a huge board. It takes up almost half the wall height wise. So, well, it allows me to get your thoughts out. Get my thoughts out. Because there's so many thoughts. You need to be able to. Well, this case is so intricate. It is. I had to kind of write it out to figure out how I was going to lay it out. But here we go. So, if you haven't listened to part one or two, please stop and do so because this is clearly not going to make any sense to you. (laughs) And where we ended off last time in part two was the DPP, Department of Public Prosecutions in Ireland, felt that there was not enough evidence to bring a prosecution against Ian Bailey. And part of the reason, or one of the justifications, I guess I should say, that they felt that way is because Bailey had freely given up his DNA, his fingerprints, and his hair samples. And the person writing this report, who I think is an attorney working for the DPP, said his voluntary provision of fingerprints and a specimen of his blood is objectively indicated of innocent. Yeah. Coincidentally. <laughs> so I was watching, I don't know if you saw on Discovery ID, they had the Ken and Barbie killer tapes. It was the Paul Bernardo and Carla Homoka mm-hmm. case up in Canada. And we covered that season one. Yeah. And interesting enough, he was convicted not only of these brutal murders, but also of being the Scarborough rapist. And he had freely given up, up his DNA. DNA. It wasn't tested. But he freely gave it up. And that's why they thought, oh, he, was, he came in an interview. He was very open. Oh, yeah, here's my DNA. And he was a prolific rapist and soon to be murderer. Yeah, so. I had totally forgotten about that piece of it, mm-hmm. that he had given up his DNA. And that's how they, isn't that how they ended up getting him, though? Because no. it was like, no. No, Carla Homolka had turned him in after he oh, beat her up. Oh, that's that, right. And then that's when they went back and, okay. That yes. started the process. And yep. then she told him about the Scarborough rapist. And they're like, huh, we interviewed him twice. <laughs> and that's when they found, oh. Oh, yeah, we had his DNA the mm. whole time. So that, mm, I wouldn't say should be the end all be all of why you do not consider someone correct. Yes. And they also did not interview any of the people. Mm-hmm. They just went off the Garda report and they didn't decide to do any, any of the that. witnesses. Correct. They didn't decide to kind of contact them and talk to them. Mm-hmm. Okay. So starting now with part three. Mm-hmm. Since the DPP felt that there was not enough evidence to prosecute Bailey, Bailey decided that on January 19th, 2004, so this is seven years after the murder, he brought a libel suit against eight newspapers in Ireland that he claimed reported that he was the murderer of Sophie Suscon de Plantier, which tainted his reputation and prevented him from making a living. Now, to say this trial was a media circus would be an understatement. And this was a libel trial. This was not a murder trial, even though it seemed to at times take on a tone of a murder 
murder trial. So to defend themselves, the newspapers had their attorneys had been granted access to the entire Garda file to use in their defense. Which is kind of crazy when you think of the fact that it was considered an ongoing murder investigation. Right. They got access to all of it. So the newspaper's lawyers went after Bailey with compelling witness testimony and none more so than that of Richie and Rosie Shelley. The Shelleys had gone out on New Year's Eve in 1998 when they ran into Bailey and Thomas. Now, the Shelleys were invited back to the Prairie Cottage for drinks afterwards, where talk, I think, throughout the evening and more so once they got back to their home had been about Sophie's murder. And this was because, really, Bailey kept bringing it up in conversation and even brought out press clippings to show the Shelleys. He was kind of a, it sounds like a little bit of a hoarder, in Mm -hmm. some things, but he kept a lot of that. I mean, he wrote a lot of those articles too. So at one point, Bailey had left the room to return to the kitchen where Richie Shelley was standing. And according to Richie, Bailey was very emotional and he's crying. And then Bailey then said, quote, I did it, unquote, which he repeated several times. Each time Bailey said, I did it, Richie would ask him, what did you do? And Bailey never answered him directly. Richie kept asking him what he did. And Bailey finally responded, quote, I went too far. I went too far. Unquote. Again, Richie asked Bailey what he meant by that, but Bailey never answered him. Bailey cried the whole time and he kept both of his hands around Richie until he suddenly left the room. He left and just kind of went to his bedroom. So, you know, kind of Richie Shelley standing there going, um. So when asked what he thought Bailey was referring to, Richie testified that he was convinced that Bailey was talking about the murder since they had spent so much time talking about it that evening. Now, Richie Shelley wouldn't be the only witness to testify as to the confession. Malachi Reed took the stand. Now, he was 21 now, so no longer a 14-year-old boy. And he told the court that Bailey told him, quote, It was fine until I went up there with a rock and bashed her fucking brains in, unquote. Malachi went on to say that he didn't know what to do afterwards, and he just kind of kept quiet until Bailey asked him how school was going. So, you know, that awkwardness in the car. I don't know that I've been in that much of an awkwardness, but yeah, I could could sense the... As a 14-year-old child in a car with somebody who just told you they bashed somebody's brains in. So Malachi testified that he knew Bailey had been drinking and appeared agitated as they started their journey home. He goes on to say he didn't tell his mother right away, but he did so the next morning as he was still upset about it. So he said, I went home and kind of processed this, you know, do I say something? Do I not? And he did. Malachi vehemently denied that he was making it up when questioned by Bailey's defense. Malachi's mother, Irene Reed, testified as to what her son told her and also reiterated to the court that her son is not a liar. Mm -hmm. So if two witnesses testifying to a confession aren't enough, why not add one more? So Bill Fuller, a former friend of Bailey's, took the stand. Now, Bill testified that he had gone to see Bailey one day to tell him what people were saying about him being a suspect in Sophie's murder. So this was early on. And he stated that Bailey started talking to him in the second in person. Quote, you did it. You killed Sophie. You did it. You saw her in spar on Saturday. You saw her walking up the aisle with her tight arse. You fancied her. You went up to see what you could get. She ran away screaming. You chased her. You went too far. You had to finish her off. Unquote. So spar, I believe, is a supermarket. Mm-hmm. So another compelling witness was Marie Farrell, 
who testified about her various sightings of Bailey from across the street from her shop after Sophie exited to the man on Calfata Bridge. So Farrell also testified that Bailey had been threatening her for months after she came forward. She claimed that he was constantly harassing and threatening her to change her story. She says Bailey wanted her to say that the Garda had put her up to it and that he was not the man she had seen at all. Farrell was adamant in her testimony that the Garda did not put her up to fingering Bailey as the man she had seen on the bridge. And you can see her in the Netflix documentary. She gives an interview and is very adamant very straightforward in these statements. So the libel trial was turning out to really be a retrospective on Ian Bailey and why he stood out as the Garda's prime suspect. The newspapers were pulling no punches and put Bailey on trial for Sophie's murder. Other evidence presented at trial included the fire seen on December 26 behind the studio cottage, Carolyn Lefwick also testified as to the phone call she had with Bailey on the morning of December 23rd before he claimed he had only heard about the murder at 1.40 p.m. Alfie Lyons was another witness for the newspapers. He testified that he had introduced Bailey to Sophie in June 1995, 18 months before the murder. He claimed that he made those introductions and was 90% certain of doing so. Journalist Paul Webster told the court that Bailey had contacted him while he was working in Paris in 96-97 for the Guardian newspaper. Bailey wanted to collaborate with him on reporting on Sophie's murder. Now, Webster claimed that Bailey stated that he could assist with information and had made it clear to him that he... Bailey had talked to Sophie and had seen her on the day she died. Mike McSweeney, who worked for a freelance photography agency, also testified to his interactions with Bailey. He reported that Bailey had contacted him about pictures taken on December 23rd of the murder scene, in which Bailey said were taken around 11 a.m. Another witness who had a conversation with Jules Thomas on December 23, 1996, also testified. James Camier ran a vegetable stand in the Goldene Market, and he stated that on the 23rd between 10.30 and 11 a.m., Thomas had told him about the murder. Although Thomas claims that that conversation was not on the 23rd, but the 24th. Camier was adamant about the date, and Thomas told him the victim was a French national. Other evidence presented during this libel trial was Bailey's diaries. The newspapers had one access to them. I guess they, when they conducted their search warrant, they, Garda had gotten them. So when Bailey had taken the stand, he was asked if he would describe himself as an animal by one of the newspaper's attorneys. And Bailey replied, no. Then the attorney presented writings from Bailey's diaries where he wrote that he was an animal that walked on two feet. Evidence was also presented that when Bailey's diaries were forensically examined, that they were full of violence, sexual preferences such as bondage, graphic drawings, and substance abuse. I think it's in the Sky documentary where they show you some pictures from the diaries. Mm. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, that's correct. They're a little graphic. In all, 20 witnesses would give testimony. On Monday, January 19th, 2004, and seven years after the murder, Judge Moran ruled against Bailey on the point that the newspapers did not brand him a murderer or defame him when they wrote about him being the prime suspect. And therefore, these eight newspapers were not liable. Now, two newspapers had printed stories about Bailey being violent with his former wife, which the judge ruled in Bailey's favor for, because 
there was no evidence that he was. And he was awarded 8,000 euros. So I think in US money, if I calculated that right, is a little over $9,000. So the judge went on to say that Ian Bailey was a violent man, and he believed all of the witnesses that testified as to his various confessions. The judge also stated that he found it odd that within hours of being released when he had been arrested, and this was after his first arrest, that he gave two interviews to national news stations in newspapers even posing for photos. The judge pointed out that, quote, Mr. Bailey is a man who likes a certain amount of notoriety, likes to be in the limelight, and likes a bit of self-publicity, unquote. And that was taken from Death in December. So as for the reward of monies owed to the newspapers and the newspapers' attorneys, and to Bailey's attorneys, I think, I think the whole cost was 200,000 euros, I think, to the newspapers' attorneys, and then 170,000 euros to his own legal team. So equating that to U.S. money, it's about $429,000, a little over that. And for a man that really doesn't have a job, it's a lot of money. That's some debt. So you would think that would be the end of it, right? Try to, you know, make some money off the libel trial, clear his name, so to speak. It did not go well in his favor, but, hmm... It is not. In 2005, after the first libel trial, news hit the media that Marie Farrell had recanted all of her earlier statements regarding Bailey on the television interview show Primetime. Now she was claiming that the Garda had put her up to fingering Bailey as the man she saw on Calfata Bridge that night. She also claimed that Bailey never threatened her or harassed her. This information came to light after Farrell decided she was tired of being threatened by the Garda and had contacted Bailey's lawyer, Frank Budimer. Now, in Jim Sheridan's documentary, he confronts Farrell about her changing stories and was she doing it for a payoff? Now, Farrell claims that when the Garda detective had contacted her about the possibility of Sophie's parents taking civil action against Bailey, she would most likely be called to testify. Now, Farrell's reply to the Garda was that she wouldn't lie in court for them again. She goes on to claim that initially the Garda had helped her out by not telling her husband about the man she had been out with that night and had also given her some help in making an insurance charge against her husband go away. And they also helped her out with an application for a summer home. So it sounds from her perspective, it was like a quid pro quo. Like, okay, you got this information. We want to keep you happy. We're mm-hmm. going to kind of do these things. So now Bailey has this new information, this recanted witness. And with this new information, Bailey launched yet another civil action, but this time against the Garda. And that was in 2014. So did the Garda conspire to take a witness statement that they knew to be false and continue to act on subsequent statements that they also knew to be false? So at this trial, Marie Farrell was to be the star witness but this time for Bailey. Judge John Hedigan presided in an opening trial. He made this statement letting both sides know that they were not here to debate the guilt or innocence of Ian Bailey. This was, again, a libel trial. So in between the first libel trial and the second libel trial, Ian Bailey got a law degree. In December 2010, he had graduated and then would later obtain a master's in law in 2013. But it doesn't look like he used any of that to represent himself. I think his thesis for his master's was something along the line of who guards the Garda, like who oversees them, you know, kind of from his perspective. So I'm just going to take a moment, like, how did he afford law school? Yeah. Where is this money coming from? I don't know. So our listeners in Ireland, how does that work? Because he owed all this money to the newspapers. And I think down the line, they had done something where they had reduced the prices or combined it. But still, Although I will say that education in the U.S. 
compared to Europe is phenomenally more expensive. Like I know when I was looking at colleges in France, it was like a fraction, like 15% of the cost as to what it is here. Like it's insane. I think they have a lot of the the government that helps like aid education so Mm -hmm. that more people can have access to it. Yeah. But it's drastically different. So that could be it. I just couldn't. Here's all this money. I'm like, how did you afford law school? So didn't his family have money, though? Um, His family? No, I don't think a lot. They were working class. Okay. I don't think weren't wealthy by any means. And again, any money you would have, you would think would have to go off paying off this debt. So back to the libel case. The Garda attorney questioned Ian Bailey, who once again took the stand about the phone call he received from Eddie Cassidy on December 23rd at 1.40 in the afternoon. And what prompted him to go directly to Sophie's home? Now, Bailey was adamant that Cassidy had said a French woman when describing the victim. The Garda attorney reminded Bailey that at the libel hearing in 2004, when he was under oath, he said that Cassidy had told him the deceased was just foreign. So the attorney pointed out that Bailey often flip-flopped on what Cassidy told him. And Bailey admitted, quote, um, there may be a variance, unquote. Bailey was also questioned about the various articles he wrote after the murder and how he had come by this information he was writing about. Remember, he had wrote about the autopsy. He had wrote about her fleeing from her attacker, her having laced up boots. He wrote about all of that. Bailey claimed he picked it up from what was already been circulating to not having directly talked to any investigators, either Irish or French, but he wrote that he had. Remember, he never went to any of the Garda press briefings. Mm -hmm. He held his own that the Garda would come to, but he never went to any of them. So when specifically questioned where he had gotten the information about Sophie's autopsy, he claimed it was common knowledge that she had died from multiple skull fractures. It was not common knowledge. No, because it hadn't been released yet. And Callalane, who can be seen in the Netflix documentary, was hired as a reenactment actress for the Crime Line television show in January 1997. She testified that while out filming at Three Castle Head, Bailey had come up to her and told her he had known Sophie. That is so creepy. Why was he there? I don't know. You... If you watch the Netflix documentary, she'll she'll talk about it. Like, here comes this guy, like, barreling up the hill. And she's just kind of like, oh. Bailey was also questioned about articles he wrote about an alleged French connection to Sophie's murder. Bailey would write about Daniel's money problems and not being able to afford a divorce so he could marry his mistress, at least in a leading way. That's how his articles kind of leaned. Bailey blamed all of that on his co-writer, Sophie Ryu. Ryu, however, would deny writing anything in an interview with writer Nick Foster for his book Murder at Roaring Water. Ryu would go on to say that Bailey pushed the French angle whenever they talked and wanted her to try to dig up anything controversial that had to do with Daniel Toscan de Plantier. Now, Jules Thomas would take the stand claiming that the Garda had changed her statements. So, for example, she denies ever telling the Garda that Bailey said he had a bad feeling something was going to happen the night of Sophie's murder when they had stopped at Hunts Hill on the way home from the pub. So they stopped at Hunts Hill overlooks the Valley at Toromore. She claimed that the Garda completely invented her supposed statement about seeking a mark on his head on Sunday that wasn't there when he went to bed. And besides the Garda making things up, Thomas also claimed that others were also recalling things incorrectly, namely Carolyn Lefwick and James Kimier, who was the market stall owner. So Marie Farrell came to court and took the stand for the plaintiffs, although reluctantly. She testified to her now updated version of events. But when questioned by the Garda attorney as to the name of the man she had been driving around with that evening, she refused to answer. 
when push, Farrell shocked the court by abruptly getting up and walking out of the courtroom. Apparently, she grabbed a coat, grabbed her purse, and just walked out the door. That looks really good in a courtroom. Like, your star witness. Because look, what, they've got Bailey. They've got Bailey's girlfriend or wife who... Girlfriend. Girlfriend. And then they have this person who gets up and walks out. Mm-hmm. Farrell was cooked back by one of Bailey's attorneys and resumed her testimony several hours later, but not before the judge admonished her for her actions and told her that she must give up the name of the man. Now, Farrell at first claimed that she was protecting the man's reputation as he had been married at the time, and next she claimed the man in question was dead, so it would do no good to release his name. In the end, she did give up the name of John Riley, but this would turn out to be some false testimony. Farrell would also state on the stand that the man she had seen that night on Kelfada Bridge had been wearing a long black coat with silver buttons. The silver button detail was one never heard before in any of her prior statements. She also claimed that Billy Fuller was selling Christmas trees outside her shop the morning of December 23rd. Now, Billy Fuller, remember, was the friend who he was talking second person to. Mm -hmm. So this was a statement she added in 2006 after she recanted all of her previous statements. She was questioned by the Garda attorney as to why she added this statement in 2006. And was it perhaps because she knew that Billy Fuller had stated having seen Jules Thomas driving near the Kilfata Bridge on her way to Goline the morning of December 23rd. Remember, she claimed, oh, it was the 24th, mm-hmm. not the 23rd that I went. So remember, Jules Thomas claims that both she and Bailey were at the Prairie Cottage and didn't leave until 2.20 that afternoon, also on the 23rd. So Geraldine O'Brien took the stand for the Garda. She had once worked in Farrell's store as a teenager. She testified in December 2013 she had ran into Farrell and the two got to talking. O'Brien was starting up a new business involving furthering one's education and Farrell was interested in it for her own children. And they discussed the price and how Farrell would go about applying for subsidies. And that is when Farrell told her that Bailey had an upcoming trial that she was to be a witness at. She claimed that he would receive a large amount of money, possibly into the millions, and she may get some of that too. Now, Farrell has denied she ever made those statements, but this woman took the stand mm-hmm. and testified in court. So on March 30th, 2015, the jury deliberated for two hours before reaching a verdict. And the jury found that the Garda did not conspire to implicate Bailey in the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. Bailey didn't get his big payout. Instead, he was saddled with more debt, to which he can never repay. So, I mean, it really didn't hurt him to have another trial. Yeah. I mean, as long as his attorney's doing it pro bono. I mean, he doesn't have any money. So Sophie's family, after the first liable trial, were very happy to hear that he had lost the liable suit against the newspapers and hoped that the testimony given in court would persuade the DPP to file charges. You had testimony on the record. However, that did not happen. Sophie's family and friends in France formed the Association for the Truth about the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, or ASOF, which was headed up by her uncle, Jean-Pierre Gazou, and Sophie's younger brother. I didn't realize her uncle is like a world-renowned physicist. Oh, Like really? he's like one of the top physicists in the world. Yeah. Hmm. And they had over 200 members at one point with regular gatherings in Paris. And the purpose of this justice society was not only to educate themselves as to Ireland's legal system, because again, their system is different, but also to put pressure on Ireland and France to try to get Bailey charged in Sophie's murder and to be prosecuted. So in June 2008, the French appealed to the Irish state for the Garda file on Sophie's murder. 
the French wanted to conduct their own investigation and to bring Sophie's murder to justice. Now, the French system is based on Napoleonic law. Now, under the French system, they can prosecute a murder of a French citizen, even if that murder occurred in another country. So the Irish Minister of Justice agreed to send them the file and sent them everything to begin their investigation. So that's something different that I don't think happens in very no. other countries. But yeah, if their citizen is murdered abroad, they can have a trial for that murder mm. who or whom they believe was the murderer and try to prosecute them. I know the case we did on Jack Unterweider was the Austrian one. They were able to prosecute him for crimes he committed in the U.S. and Czechoslovakia as well as Austria. But that's, you know, their citizen who committed crimes abroad. They just combined it at all. But this was the first time I've ever heard of this. So in 2010, with Ireland failing to abide by the European arrest warrant they had issued, France investigators continued their investigation moving forward with bringing Bailey to justice. When Sophie's body had been exhumed back in 2008, the French ordered new forensic testing at that time. Now, disappointingly, it yielded no new evidence. So the French authorities would return to Ireland one more time in 2011 to continue some witness statements and seeing what they could do to solidify their case. So in the summer of 2016, over 19 years since Sophie's murder, the French authorities decided to prosecute Ian Bailey for her murder. Now, once again, the French applied a European arrest warrant for Bailey, and once again, it was rejected by the Irish High Court. Now, a lower court had decided to honor the warrant, but Bailey appealed successfully and got it overturned. So the French decided, eh, we're just going to try in abstentia. Gotta love the French system. (laughs) They're going to get you one way or another. In May 2019, Bailey's trial began in Paris and was held at the Paris Criminal Court. Jean-Pierre Bontou was the prosecutor for France. Now, Bailey was offered the option of coming to France and putting on a defense, but he declined and stated that it would be a farce. And he felt he would be jailed after the show trial and there was no way he would receive a fair trial in France. Now, Bailey's trial would not have a jury, but would be decided by a panel of judges. One presiding judge... Frédéric Aline and two other judges would be present to hear the case. So the French did notify 24 witnesses from Ireland asking them to appear and testify at Bailey's trial, but only two would end up attending, and that would be Billy Fuller and Irene Reed, the mother of Malachi Reed. So I think it's in the, I know it's in the Jim Sheridan documentary, but I think it might be a little bit in the Netflix documentary. They talk about how it was very like they just contacted these witnesses like maybe a week or so before trial. Like, oh. like it wasn't thought out process planning. Like these people had to find their own way to France. They had to. Yeah, I didn't think it sounded like very well planned out. So the French prosecutor laid out their case at the opening, clearly stating that they felt Bailey's confessions were just that confessions. They also didn't feel Bailey had an alibi that made any sense the night of Sophie's murder and that Marie Farrell's initial statements she made to the Garda were believable. They did not place any importance on her statements that she since retracted. So the French also felt that the scratches and the wound to Bailey's forehead were signs of his culpability. The French trial mostly consisted of the judge reading into record various witness statements. And even then, they didn't put everything in that the authorities had gathered when presenting their case. They kind of Pick the most ones they thought were, yeah, that they thought were important. So one of the witnesses to testify for the Republic of France was Alexandra Louis, Sophie's cousin, who told the court that a few days before Sophie was to leave for Ireland, she had received a phone call at her production company from a man from Ireland who lived near Sophie's holiday home. He had 
called claiming to be a freelance journalist and writer, and he had wanted to meet with Sophie for, quote unquote, cultural purposes. At the time, Sophie was a bit alarmed as she wanted to know how this man had gotten her work number, but he didn't really explain himself. And Louis testified Sophie didn't appear to be bothered by it too much, but Louis could not really remember the name of the caller. She knew it was a journalist, she knew it was a writer, but she couldn't remember the name. Paul Webster, a former writer for The Guardian stationed in Paris, testified that he had a conversation with Bailey in 1997 about Sophie's murder, and that during that conversation, Bailey told him he had known Sophie. Now, during the trial, a statement from Mark McCarthy was read into the record. McCarthy was a friend of one of Thomas's daughters, and in September of 1995, he witnessed Bailey talking to a small blonde woman at the storytelling festival held in Cape Clear. Later, he would recognize a photo of Sophie as being the woman Bailey had been talking to. Now, the French were trying to establish that, yes, there was a connection between Bailey and Sophie. Now, Bailey, when contacted by author Nick Foster, claimed it was all rubbish and nonsense. So what was happening, and you can see this in the in the Jim Sheridan documentary, is Nick Foster was kind of working with Jim Sheridan. So he, and he's, I think, fluent in French, Nick Foster. So he was there covering the trial. And what he would do is at the end of the day, come outside and call Bailey and kind of report what was stated in court or ask him the questions that were kind of being asked to get his response. And in the meantime, Jim Sheridan had a camera crew on him. So you see Nick Foster talking to him on the phone in France. You see him Bailey sitting in his kitchen in Ireland and then kind of getting his response at that moment. He really liked that notoriety. So the French had commissioned a clinical psychiatrist, Dr. Jean-Michel Maison and psychologist Katie Lorenzo Regrigne to develop a character profile of Bailey based upon his writings, Garda interviews and other reports. They seem to focus heavily on Bailey's diaries, especially what he wrote about after injuring Thomas in the 1996 assault. So this was only, I think, five months before Sophie's murder. Quote, I feel sick reading my report of the events that night. I wanted to kill her. Unquote. They deemed Bailey to be a narcissist, egotistical, impulsive, and in constant need of attention and recognition. They deemed that Bailey takes pleasure in being the center of attention and likes to provoke others. They concluded that Bailey suffered from a borderline psychological disorder without psychotic features. Now, one of the more shocking testimonies came from Patrick Loney, a film developer. Now, Loney had made a statement to the Garda in October 2000. He told the Garda that in May of 2000, a man had called him asking if he could discreetly develop a role of film. Loney at the time lived in Clonakilty, approximately 35 miles from Skull. Now, both men went to Loney's darkroom where he began to develop the film. The first couple of photos were family type images, but the later shots showed a woman lying outside on the ground. Lene stated that she looked fully clothed and the ground appeared to be stony and there was a gate nearby next to what appeared to be some briars. Now, in a couple of photos, you could make out who was taking the photos by the person's shoes, because I think as they pointed the camera down, you could see the top of their shoes. The man then suddenly grabbed the wet photos and negatives and took off. Now, when the guard showed Lowney a photo lineup, he identified Ian Bailey as the man that had brought him to process the film. Now, there is no evidence to back up Lowney's story, only his statement to the guard. By the time the French trial came around, he was deceased. However, 
Dick Cross, a journalist with the Irish Independent, Patrick Bernay, a picture editor for the Irish Independent, and Mike McSweeney, a freelance photographer, had given statements that Bailey had offered them photographs of the crime scene in phone calls he had made after 2 p.m. on December 23, 1996. Bailey had told them that the photos were taken around 11 a.m. at the crime scene, approximately 22 minutes after the Garda had arrived on scene, if Bailey is to be believed. To add credence to these photos that may have existed is a statement Thomas made to Carolyn Lefwick that she testified to at one of the libel trials. Lefwick testified that at a party held at Billy Fuller's house in late January 1997 that Thomas told her, quote, you should have seen the body. It was a terrible sight, unquote. Ariana Barina's witness statement was also read into the record, which had been given to the Garda two years after the murder. She was a friend of one of Thomas's daughters and had stayed at the Prairie Cottage the day after the murder. She claimed that on December 24, 1996, she noticed heavy scratches on Bailey's hands and forearms, and they look fresh. Thomas and Bailey claimed that they came from cutting down a Christmas tree. Ariana thought it was a bit odd at the time, as the tree they had cut to use as their Christmas tree was very tiny. It wasn't really big. She also took note that in the bathroom was a large bucket that held what looked like a dark winter coat soaking in it. Now, in the Netflix documentary, she noted that it was kind of odd because it was the middle of winter and a large coat like that would be difficult to dry. Well, and especially a lot of places in Europe, they don't necessarily have dryers. Like everything has to be air dried. And two, just to go back to the scratches, as a reminder, I don't remember if it was part one or part two, but we talked about how the Garda actually like had someone chop down a tree to see if it would make scratches like that. And it had not. It had not. Yes. So other witness statements were read into the record as well. Martin Graham, a former British soldier, had been stationed in Northern Ireland, claimed to have met Bailey in February 1997. This was after his first arrest. Graham claimed that Bailey was talking about how the Garda had focused on him, claiming he had gone up to Sophie's home in a blackout and killed her. Graham stated Bailey then said, quote, if this is what happened, then I did it, unquote. Graham would also go on to claim that the Garda had bribed him with cash and drugs to try to get Bailey to make a confession on tape. The cash and drugs being from like the evidence locker cash and drugs. (laughs) Come on, Garda. Yeah, not their finest moment. At one point, Graham had played the role of a double agent, basically telling Bailey that the Garda were trying to get him to confess, but then telling the Garda you know, what Bailey was saying. Since Bailey refused to attend the trial, there was no real defense put on for him. And in the end, the Paris court found him guilty in abstention to the murder of Madame Sophia Toscon de Plantier and sentenced him to 25 years in prison. Now, the French tried for a third time to get Bailey extradited to France, but were once again rebuffed by the Irish courts. If Bailey should ever leave Ireland, however, on his own, or perhaps being extradited to France, or he decides, you know, I'm just going to turn myself into the French authorities, he will have another trial and he will be able to put on a defense. So they'll lay this verdict aside and he'll get a whole new trial. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Garda investigation and some missteps and mistakes made. The problem with the investigation that has caused this case really to remain open in Ireland, I believe it is the longest running unsolved case they have. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's been now. I mean, we're coming on Christmas week at 25 years. Mm -hmm. So investigators... We talked about in the beginning, these investigators were not experienced with homicide investigations. There was no murder in living memory. They didn't have a forensic team on unit. That took seven and a half hours for them to get there after being contacted. There's no time of death. 
the body was left out in the elements for close to 26 hours. And of course, we only had one state pathologist at the time, and he didn't get there till the next day. There were no photographs taken of Bailey's injuries, not the forehead wound, not his hands. There's no recordings were made of the police interviews with Bailey or Thomas. So that Garda had, you know, written out their statements and they signed them. But now they're going back saying, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. They changed that, you know, Mm because there was no, nobody owned a microphone. Nobody on a tape recorder in Ireland at the time. I didn't understand that. I was kind of like, how do you not? Okay. The lost gate. They lost the gate. They don't know where the gate is. The 10 by 16 metal gate is gone. And one of the biggest things, and I think I mentioned this in part one, is interviews weren't really done in a timely manner, so to speak. So you have Ariana, the um, Italian house guest who was there on Christmas Eve, a woman who took a Christmas Day video at the Skull Harbor for the Christmas swim, the Leftwicks, they weren't all within the first few weeks. It took sometimes months or years. So this was a piecemeal puzzle. And with these incremental statements, because I think people didn't realize, and they reference this, I think, in the documentaries, the significance of what they knew. Mm -hmm. and how it all fit together until really months or years later. So some questions related to this case. Did Bailey know Sophie? I believe he did. I think he did. Yeah, I believe that he did know her more than he stated, because he has stated, I knew of her, I'd seen her from afar, but I'd never talked to her. All the witnesses have made statements that Bailey told them he met her or he knew her and not just at a distance. Well, and here's the thing. Honestly, this is such a small town that Mm -hmm. at the same time I don't even know that it's not that it's insignificant but even if he had seen her from afar it's not somebody like you would cross in New York City and not know where they live like he knew where she lived Mm -hmm. he knew where to find her if he was going to come after her even if they had never had a conversation he would still know where that is yes he did work for Alfie Lyons Mm -hmm. how did he know to go directly to the murder scene if only being told it was a foreign national I think in the Netflix documentary they reference that at this time in this area there were like 40 50 plus foreign nationals from all different countries and I don't believe that he was told that it was a French woman in his initial call with Eddie Cassidy, because Eddie Cassidy claims he didn't even know. They were just told it was a foreign national. Might have been told it was a woman, Mm -hmm. but not a French woman. How did he know about all the injuries she suffered before the autopsy was released? He gave details that meant he had gotten information directly from the autopsy, or he knew it because he was involved somehow. Why does Bailey get a pass on statements that he made to numerous people that he knew her or had killed her as being dark humor or sarcasm. But those witnesses are not believed in the least by the DPP. And talking about sarcasm and dark humor, who jokes about that? Who jokes about the violent murder of a terrorized woman who was bludgeoned to death? What kind of person does that to especially a 14-year-old boy? There was also, I think, statements he made to a couple at a wedding. To the couple Richie and Rosie Shelley he invited into his home. To an employer, to a close friend that stopped by to check on him. And he just carts it off as, oh, it was dark humor or sarcasm. And what was the motive? Had Bailey drunk on whiskey from the night of drinking, headed up to Sophie's home, leaving his passed out partner at home, and when she rebuffed him, did he snap? And did he chase her down and take out his rage on her? What I found interesting, and if you look at the murder board behind you, you can see that a lot of his statements to Billy Furler, to Richie Rosie Shelley, to Malachi Reed, he was drinking. He was mm-hmm. drunk in all those statements. 
So in an interview with the Cork's Red FM station with Netflix documentary director John Dower, he talks about the dichotomy of Ian Bailey and how he claims he wants to be left alone and live his life without all the scrutiny. But then he gives all these interviews and participates in the documentaries that are about this case. He goes on to state that just when this case seems to fade, it's Bailey who revives it with his libel trials and interviews. Daniel Tuscon de Plantier had been quoted in an interview that Bailey's new job after Sophie's murder was to claim he didn't kill her. In the West Cork podcast, Tom Quinn, a local house painter, is quoted as saying that Bailey, quote, didn't have a life and only got one after Sophie was murdered. He had nothing when he came to Ireland, unquote. In a recently published news article, Ian Bailey is considering bringing yet another lawsuit, this time against Netflix for their documentary, which he claims is defamatory and full of lies about him. So where are we today? Because wait, news has broken. (laughs) So a couple things have changed. So a news article was published in July 2021 in the Irish Times that reported that Marie Farrell has made a new statement to the Garda in a two-hour interview at the Skipper Dean station. Jim Sheridan, the documentary filmmaker of A Murder at the Cottage, had contacted the Garda in May 2021, saying that he had discovered pertinent information while filming his documentary. He stated that Farrell had talked to him before his documentary aired that the man she had claimed to see on Kelfada Bridge on the night of Sophie's murder was a shallow man of Middle Eastern complexion. And I think that's what shallow means. And she has referred to the man she saw as shallow even back then. This man was also the man she had seen across from her shop on December 21st. Now, Ms. Farrell claims that she recognized the man after viewing photographs online related to Daniel Tuscon de Plantier. So I guess before this documentary aired, she decided to do a little Google searching after 20 plus years. And that's when she had seen this photo of an associate. He's standing next to this man. He's somehow mm-hmm. an associate of his. So she shared that photograph with Jim Sheridan, which he passed along to the Garda. According to the Irish Times, the Garda will begin verifying whether or not this man was on any flight or ferry manifest around the time of Sophie's murder. I don't know. I think uh, Marie has kind of counted herself out as a reliable witness. Well, yeah, they contacted Sophie's uncle to kind of ask him what he thought in that the same line, like, well, you know, who do you believe? First Marie Farrell, second Marie Farrell, you know, she's not very reliable. What shocks me is how she's never been prosecuted for perjury. Mm -hmm. Because at one point, she was lying in one trial. She was either lying in liable trial number one, or she was lying in liable trial number two. But she's never been prosecuted for perjury. As of early 2021, news broke that Jules Thomas and Ian Bailey are no longer together. In an interview Thomas gave in June 2021, she stated that the couple broke up mainly due to her daughters refusing to visit her with her grandchildren while Bailey was still in residence. She asked him to move out, which she said he was in a bit of disbelief about initially, but she gave him a vacate date of July, ending their 30-year relationship. Thomas stated that she was tired of it all and had initially felt compelled to stay with Bailey, as it would look bad for him if she broke off their relationship. But she also states that she believes Bailey is innocent of Sophie's murder. So to this day, she doesn't believe he had anything to do with it. More news broke at the beginning of November 2021 that the Garda Commissioner, Drew Harris, has assigned a new team to do a full review of all the evidence and statements. This is to be a full criminal investigation and not just a cold case review, and no expense is being spared, and the newest technology and methodology will be utilized. The Garda have stated that they will not be making any additional statements until there is a breakthrough in the case, and they believe this case can finally be solved and put to rest. 
Hopefully they can find the gate. And there's <laughs> still more. In early December 2021, Nick Foster reported that he had been contacted by someone in Skull about a silver watch that had been taken off Sophie's body the night of her murder, taken as a trophy. Now, Foster, I guess this person reached out to him and he turned that information over to the Garda for investigation. Now, I have never in all my readings, listening to the podcast, watching the documentaries. And there has been a lot of all that. There's, there's <laughs> been too much of all that. Nothing has been mentioned of ever being missing. Like nothing was taken from her home and there's never been anything missing off her body. Now, that's not to say maybe there was because we know that the police do hold back information and maybe ask the family not to say anything because if they could find this watch, if it existed, mm -hmm. it would tie a murderer to the killer. So I don't know where that is right now. I'm sure the guard are following up on that. But there's still more. This just broke yesterday. I Love the Google News alerts. Nick Foster once again says he is contacted by somebody who he feels very credible and that this person has stated that Sophie's killer had accessed the crime scene in the early hours of the investigations and had knelt over her body and maybe had, in some cases, destroyed some evidence. Kind of that's what it seemed to allude to. And he has given this person's name as her killer to her family, but he didn't state what that was and has given that also information to the guard. Because I think it was to show that the guard had really, again, not trained mm -hmm. in homicide investigation, so to speak, that did they not cordon and off quickly enough? Did someone gain access to the crime scene? So in Michael Sheridan's book, Death in December, he writes a retrospective of Sophie's life through interviews with family and friends. He goes on to write about a letter Sophie wrote a friend, Andre Rousselet, after hearing about the passing of Francois Mitterrand, former president of France. She wrote, We must not cry about the dead. We must think of them. Well, Madame Sophia Tuscon de Plantier, we are thinking of you, especially this week, because it is the 25-year anniversary of your passing. I believe her family was heading to Ireland for some memorials because her son still owns her holiday home. So Sophie's son, Pierre-Louis, continues to appeal to the people of Ireland to come forward with any information that they may have on his mother's murder. Pierre-Louis, like I said, has kept his mother's home in West Cork and continues to visit to this day with his wife and their two children. I believe his daughter's named after his mom. I know. So there you go. That is it. Told you. Oh, my goodness. Three parts. So let us know what you think about this case. What are your thoughts? Reach out to us. You can do that through our website, criminaldiscoursepodcast.com. You can do it through our Facebook page, our Instagram page, Criminal Dispod, and of course, our YouTube channel. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And as always, if you could tell somebody about our podcast, that'd be great. We are kind of a word of mouth kind of podcast as kind we go. Of. Well, that's, <laughs> let's see. Our marketing budget is zero. So yes, <laughs> that is the only way we get things done. But if you could on whatever platform you listen to us on, if you could subscribe and leave us a review, we'd appreciate it. If you could leave us a five star, we'd appreciate it even more. So as always, guys, we want you to stay safe. We're looking forward to a better 2022 here. Woo -woo. And also, this is our 100th episode. I know, right? Fireworks. Fire if we had a budget. Fireworks. <laughs> right. So thank you all that have stuck with us. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. We all wish you well in 2022. And we'll be back with more new episodes. Yeah. 
I'm excited for 2022. Yeah. What it's going to bring. I know. Have you started working on your next case yet? No. That's a silly question, Trish. I've started working on mine. Okay. <laughs> it's not as deep as this. I promise. It'll be like a one episode thing. All right. Thank you all, everybody. And remember, if you see something, say something. You might have that missing piece of the puzzle it takes to solve a crime. Like all of these citizens in Ireland who want this case solved and they came forward wanting to give that information. They might not have known what information they held, but when they were asked, they gave it. So again, thank you so much. We want you to be safe out there. But let's remember, we also need to be kind. So until next time, guys. Bye. Bye.